You're listening to a sermon series on Judges, Broken People, Faithful God. To learn more, visit linworthroadchurch.com. And as the Apostle Paul wrote, we see your glory, Father, that your, your greatness, your, your perfection, your beauty, we see it best in the face of Christ. And we pray that the presence of Christ might be here this morning so strong and real that we could feel you. Father, we do pray that that same presence of Christ would be with these families that are suffering loss this morning. Here, our neighbors in our community. And uh, we lift up the parents and the students, Lord, impacted from this accident. Be with them, Father. And if any of us have an opportunity to serve them, Lord, may we embrace that opportunity. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, way back at the beginning of our story in Judges, the people began with a vow to God that they made at Shechem. And they vowed there to be united around a purpose, around a ruler, God, and a national identity. With that, they were given one job to do, and that was to drive out the inhabitants of the land. And by the time we get to the end of the book, we find them in a deep spiritual void. Spiritual leadership has sunk to new lows. Confusion and chaos abound. They are walking on the edge of an abyss. Compromise, civil war, strife threaten to completely unravel them. They no longer know who they are. They don't know how to act. And they default to every man for himself. When our kids were younger, we took a trip to the Grand Canyon. We actually went in January. And because of the weather, some of the hiking was restricted. So we went to Bryce National Park. Anybody been there to Bryce? Beautiful place, my goodness. Uh, known for its, uh, you may have seen pictures of its crimson-colored hoodoos. And uh, so my oldest son and I ventured out on a pretty narrow hiking path. Uh, it had a drop of about what appeared to be at least a 1,000 feet. And the path was quite narrow. There was no protection between us. And we got to a place on the path where it was completely ice-covered. My son, wearing tennis shoes, with a little amount of tread, insisted that we move forward. And I put my dad hat on, trying to improve the dad brand, and I said, absolutely no. And I had to storm against his protest for quite a while and for quite a few years after that. But I had heard all the stories of young men dying in the Grand Canyon convinced of their invincibility, and I did not want to take that chance. But that picture of my son and I walking on an ice-filled path next to an abyss, that's where we find Israel at the end of the book of Judges. This story opens up with distortion like an old scratchy record. Two people are together who do not belong together. A Levite priest and his concubine. 
Now, a concubine in this era was a legal wife with a lower secondary status coming from a lower socioeconomic background. Now, she's left him and gone back to her parents. The text says in verse 2 that she was unfaithful. But the meaning of that is unclear, and we should not assume her guilt. Four months pass, and the priest decides to go get her and take her back. Now, in the next few verses, she fades from the picture, the concubine. We do not know her will in this matter. The father, the father-in-law, her father, wines and dines the priest over several days, as was the customary tradition of ancient Near Eastern hospitality. Then in verse 10, we are told the priest heads home with his two saddled donkeys and his concubine. When it is time to find lodging for the evening, they go to the city of Gibeah. Gibeah is a city in the territory that was given to the tribe of Benjamin. Look at verses 14 and 15. Let's, I'll read these. Judges 19, verses 14 and 15. So they passed and went on their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in to spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down. This is the Levite. He went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took him in their house to spend the night. Now, long before Hotel 6 and Ramada Inn, the custom here was that residents of the village of a town were expected to provide lodging for travelers. And according to one writer, to refuse hospitality would be the same as refusing to stop for a distressed motorist who's motioning for help. Well, eventually an old man sees their plight and invites them to his home. Now what happens next in our story is horrifying. And there is no way the writer can prepare us for it. Except that up to this point, we have seen so far examples of all-out commitment to hospitality. Now that commitment is about to be twisted. Some wicked men of the city, after they're inside and bedded in, we assume, some wicked men from the city came to the house and surrounded it. They pounded on the door and they demanded that the old man bring out the Levite so they can sexually abuse him. Our own Corey Bacher here commented on this passage, writing, That night the men of Gibeah came to the house wanting to rape the Levite in order to humiliate him and demonstrate their authority over him. This has nothing to do with being a homosexual, but with exercising dominance over another, much like prison rape. Close quote. Now, the old man is horrified by this. But what happens next is equally as horrible. In an attempt to provide hospitality for his guest, he offers the men his own virgin daughter and the Levite's concubine. Now, the story is an obvious flashback to another very terrible incident in the Old Testament. The story of Lot's 
visit to Sodom and Gomorrah. If you're not familiar with Sodom and Gomorrah, they are the archetype of wickedness. They are the, uh, the, the example, the pinnacle of this outright godlessness and wickedness and injustice. What is the writer saying by doing this? He is saying that Israel is no better than Sodom and Gomorrah. The old man pleads with the men to not do such an outrageous thing, but his pleas are ignored. The Levite, watching this interaction, decides to initiate the action himself and sends out his concubine. They abuse her until dawn. And when they have finally left, she collapses by the front door with her hands stretched out as if to plea for help. There you see one artist rendering of this unbelievable scene. Tragic and sad. This is where the Levite finds her in the morning, unresponsive. And without any evidence of emotion on his part, he puts her on his donkey and they head back to their home. Now remember, this is the Bible. This is not AMC. Okay? This is not AMC. What takes place next is terrifying, but is also consistent with the ancient world. And you can look up 1 Samuel 11.7 for a cross-reference. But look at verses 29 and 30. And when the priest entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her, limb by limb, into 12 pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. You remember, there are 12 tribes. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Thus consider this, take counsel, and speak. This dismemberment was a call to war. So at least, at least we find appropriate outrage on the part of this priest, yet we find ourselves perplexed by his call for justice. Why is he so incensed after such detestable treatment of her? Well, surely it can't be for the cause of love. We can only conclude that he's offended that his property has been such uh, treated with such, or so mistreated he feels personally violated. This single terrible act now puts the entire nation at risk. Some of you are World War I history fans. And you remember how that war began by the Archduke, uh, the assassination of the Archduke of Austria by a Serbian nationalist. And that propelled the beginning of World War I, that little small spark. This is what's happening here. The Israelite leaders come together. They come before the Lord at Mizpah. And they ask the Levite, they ask him, how could this terrible thing have happened? And so the decision of this assembly is to give the city of Gibeah what it deserves. When challenged, the people of Benjamin not only refuse to give up the men of Gibeah, they actually go on a counter-offensive. The men of Benjamin rally up 26,000 swordsmen and 700 soldiers, and they attack first. The other 
representatives, 400,000 actually Israelites from all over their nation had gathered against the men of Gibeah. But the first day and actually the second day belong to the men of Benjamin. They win both days. This is all out civil war now within the people of God. What began with a vow and a covenant in the first chapter of Judges is now fallen into outright civil war. On the third day, there's a reversal. The Israelites lure the Benjamite troops away from Gideon. They then burn their city. They've got them caught in an ambush. 25,000 are slaughtered and only 600 remain. You might ask, well, surely, Chris, that's got to be the end of it, right? Well, the pretzel logic just gets worse. One writer asked, do you see how things have deteriorated? Like a single spark can lead to a raging forest fire that destroys thousands of acres. A single act of inhospitality sets, sets into motion a tragic chain of events. Sexual violence, dismemberment, civil war, and now near extinction. But their desire for justice takes a strange twist. Outrage Outrage turns to grief. Look at chapter 21, verses 2 and 3. And so the people of Bethel sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept bitterly. This was the the, the victorious uh, uh, tribes. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel, that there should be one tribe lacking. They realize now that one of the tribes is in danger of disappearing. There's only 600 Benjamite soldiers that remain. What can be done? Well, follow me on this. It's going to be just a little complicated. Let me just slow down and try to follow me on this. The solution is connected to two vows that they make during that Mizpah assembly. The first vow is in 21, verse 1. It's not on your screen. But they vow not to give their daughters to marriage to Benjamin. Benjamin, you're not getting any of our daughters in marriage. Then in 21, 5, the second vow is to kill anyone who did not come to their assembly. Okay? You see how they're in a little bit of a bind, right? They're grieving because one of the tribes is going to come to extinction because there's 600 men, and what? There's no women. There's no kids. There's only one generation left. They're in a bind. But they've said, we're not giving you any of our daughters. Both of these were very rash vows. And they... And when the Israelites proceed to honor these vows, we see the same kind of superstition, the same kind of violence that we saw back in chapter 10 during the story of Jephthah. But in classic pretzel logic, the Israelites begin to fix the problem by keeping the second vow. They do a little research. Hey, hey, you remember the assembly? There weren't any men there from Jabesh Gilead, a a, a town. None of their men came. Now, we don't know why they didn't come. We've not done any research. Maybe they never even heard of this. 
Maybe they, we didn't communicate it to them. Despite the possibility of innocence, the Israelite warriors keep their second vow. They go to this town and kill everyone except the virgins. These are the same children of Israel who refused or reluctantly fought the Canaanites, and now they are doing holy war on themselves. There turned out to be 400 virgins left, and they were given to the men of Benjamin. Wait, 400, that's a problem, isn't it? There's 600 men. And there's only 400 virgins. We need 200 more. How are we going to solve this issue? How about some more pretzel logic? They commanded the people of Benjamin. Look at chapter 21, verses, verse 20. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. And if the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyard and snatch... Each man his wife for the, from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, why did you take our daughters? We will say to them, grant them graciously to us because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle. Neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. Of what? Breaking the first vow. And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their numbers from the dancers whom they carried off. And the people went, the people went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. Let's look at that image if we could, Justin, now. Here's an image again, another painter's rendition of this terrible crime against these poor women, vulnerable women. You know, to even begin to grasp what's going on, we have to picture and remember that to the Israelites, God is not a person, is not Yahweh. He's not our personal covenant-keeping God, but he's just like the gods of the Canaanites, the gods or goddesses of the Canaanites that we can manipulate. These Canaanite gods, by the way, were treacherous. And why were they treacherous? Because the Canaanite gods were simply projections of themselves. That's what they were. And those gods have no power to restrain our worst impulses. So in their logic, they have to honor their vow, even if it means dishonoring their daughters by instructing those remaining 200 warriors from Benjamin to capture them and actually seize them by force. In our language, it's flat-out kidnapping. It's nothing less than kidnapping. One author said it perfectly We can't give you our daughters because of of a vow we've made, but if you kidnap them, we'll look the other way. And we won't be guilty of breaking the vow. The narrator ends with a thoroughly illustrated conclusion in chapter 21, verse 25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
The mistreatment and abuse of one woman has expanded to 600 women. Israel is just like its neighbor. Just like them. They have fallen apart because they have bought into the beliefs and values of their surrounding culture. This piece of Israel's history, it's interesting, it's summarized, it's captured in Psalm 106. Let's look at that. This is a history of Israel, and it's captured in this psalm. And it begins this section of the book of Judges. It's a, this is an abstract of the book of Judges. And it begins in Psalm 106, verse 34, saying, Israel failed to destroy the nations in the land as the Lord had commanded them. Instead, they mingled among the pagans and adopted their evil customs. They worshipped their idols, which led to their downfall. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters. By sacrificing them to the idols of Canaan, they polluted the land with murder. They defiled themselves by their evil deeds, and their love of idols was adultery in the Lord's sight. Now, question. If you had questioned earlier, how could God bring divine judgment on the Canaanite cultures? I want to appeal to you to see that when you see Israel played out as we've played it today, that is a picture, that is a description of the Canaanite cultures. That's a picture of them. A world of might makes right, unthinkable injustice, twisted morality, and the suffering of the vulnerable. And highlighted here in the book of Judges particularly is the suffering of women. We have seen the plight of women descend sharply from the heights of Deborah to this poor unnamed woman treated as property by her husband. And he, my goodness, presumably is supposed to be the best of the land, a spiritual leader. And the writer leaves these individuals anonymous. They are nameless, as if to say it could have happened to anybody in the land. As to the cries, as to divine judgment, the cries of pain do reach our Father's ears. He is not unmoved. And after great patience and many appeals, he does act. He does judge. And he must judge. For he is the creator. He began this world of human life on planet earth. And he is not passive in his ultimate responsibility to make everything right in the end. And this is where the book of Judges ends. It ends abruptly. And that's on purpose. The writer does not put a polish on things. He wants us to think about our own lives and to think about our culture. And if you, friend, if you are, we are walking on the edge of an abyss, then this serves as a warning to us. A warning of what life can become when we, const- when we reject God and construct our own vision of morality. 
Judges shows us that we sink to the lowest common denominator, and yet we seek to justify it by calling it moral. Without a moral center, we bounce from one extreme to another. We find loopholes, and we employ a twisted logic. The people of Israel found themselves keeping the strict customs of hospitality, but subjecting women to horrors. They knew that keeping promises and vows was noble. And rather than humbling themselves and admitting they spoke impulsively, they inflicted more suffering on the powerless rather than face the infamy of an unkept vow. There are lessons, friends, here for us. Are there not lessons for you and me today? We, like them here, are seeking to create a culture without God. But in doing so, we find that we continue to frame things in terms of what's right and what's wrong. We justify what we do by reaching with, for words loaded for meaning, I mean loaded with meaning, words like love, words like justice. And of course, these words love are these words justice are absolutely meaningless without a God over all of us who defines what they represent. Without someone outside of us, without someone greater than us, what are these words but our preferences and our feelings in the moment? Funny thing, even as we try to throw off God and morality, like an old worn sweater, we find ourselves uncomfortable with our nakedness and quickly go to the store and buy a new sweater. When will this culture wake up and return to one of the great cardinal truths of Western civilization? One of the reasons we got to where we are today is that a sense of right and wrong is universal and it is not something human beings make up along the way but is something the divine God put into us when he made us in his image. All right. Now, let me just close here by saying, or let, let, me, let, me, let me pivot here. I still got a few more minutes. Me end with my cultural stuff, and how does this change us? How does this change you and me? What does this mean for you and me? Go back to Psalm 106, if you would. Go back to Psalm 106. And if we pick up, if you will, and if you pick up and if you look at verse 40, what you will see here again is a continued explanation of the history of the book of Judges. And if you look at verse 45, it says, For their sake God remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. See, the writers of the psalm here, they're facing their own desperate situation. And according to verse 6 in this psalm, at least part of that mess was of their own making. And so to confront the crisis head on, the psalmist urges the people to remember God's mercy, God's saving acts of the past from the days of the judges. 
And overwhelmed by his grace, astonished by his commitment to keep his promises, amazed at how he preserved his people despite themselves. What can they do but in verse 48, they say, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen, praise the Lord. They fall on their knees in worship. You see, the larger picture of this story is this. God will not give up on this nation. This is the people that he will bring from the brink of abyss. Actually, they're in the abyss. This is the same group of people from whom the Prince of Peace and the Lord of Glory will emerge. This group of people that we've just described, that you've been ready to boot out from their injustice, their violence. This is the group. If this does not scream to you that God will never give up on you, then you're not listening. God will never, never give up on you. You know, when he saved this group of people, by the way, and I'm going to just, I'm not going to go too far because this is our topic next week, but it's so fascinating, so ironic that in In bringing the Prince of Peace and the Lord of Glory, he's going to do so. And guess what? He's going to use a woman. A woman is going to take center stage. An unexpected heroine. She's actually non-Jewish. A complete surprise. The God of the unexpected is going to work in a way that you and I could never come up with or guess or make up on our own. You know, this picture of God has brought such great encouragement to me because I still find in my life many times very apparent reasons why God should be done with me and why God should give up on me and why I should resign from this job or whatever. I keep finding many solid reasons for that. And I keep coming back to stories like this that God will never, ever give up on his people. Look at Psalm 111, verse 2, for a very practical way to apply this. Psalm 111, verse 2. And so what can I do this week? How can I turn this kind of crazy, tragic, violent, but really amazing God story into something practical that I can do? Look at Psalm 111, verse 2. The writer said, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Pondered by all who delight in them. To love God is to love his works, to love what he does. You might say, I love the art of Van Gogh or the architecture of Frank Lloyd Wright or the poetry of Robert Frost. To love a spouse or a friend is to not only love their character or to meet a need, but is to love what they do and how they do it. The works of God I see in three different ways. There are the works of God recorded in the Bible. Creation, the exodus, the birth of the church, for example. There are the works of God, of what God is doing in history right now. God, even in this day, is doing remarkable, stunning things that have never taken place before in the history of the world. It's the works of God. And then thirdly, there are the works of God in your life. bringing you the gospel and giving you the faith to believe it. Answered prayers, holy moments, leadings, 
providing work for you and other creature comforts and grace shown to you in a million different ways. I want to urge you this week, reflect, think about intentionally, set aside time to think about the works of God. The works of God have inspired the world's greatest art. You might think about writing your own song or poem or short story or create a work of art as an act of worship. You might take a walk in nature or enjoy a sunset remembering you're walking in his cathedral. You might turn off the TV or radio and think about what kind of God refuses to leave a group of people like this. He has so much more grace, friends. He has so much more grace and so much more patience than we could have ever, ever, ever imagined or envisioned. And don't ever let anyone tell you that the First Testament paints a picture of this fiery, breathing, judgmental God. My goodness, he is as gracious and patient there as he is in the New Testament reflection of the cross. God is amazing. And that's lastly what we ought to do is we ought to reflect on Jesus. Right? Think about it. Ponder, study, take delight in, take joy in Jesus. You know, we just read about a terrible injustice and a pretzel logic that defies description. But you know what? All of that pales in comparison to Christ's crucifixion. He was sinless. He was perfectly innocent. He only loved He fought injustice with a pure heart. He spoke for the voiceless. He gave the world a moral teaching and ethic unlike it had ever seen. He healed. He raised others from the dead. Compassion oozed from his pores. What did we do? What did we do in response? What did the best of human beings do? They hung him naked on a tree, left to gasp for every breath left to vomit or defecate or urinate openly before jeering crowds. We beat him brutally. And worst of all, we separated him from his father, with whom he had enjoyed perfect eternal fellowship. Yes, though we did this, the Bible said we did it under God's watchful eye, indeed with his permission. For Christ gave himself voluntarily for this work. It was a work of paying for the grossness, paying for the grossness of our sins. And thus the grotesque picture we see of Jesus hanging on the cross, that grotesque picture marries, it brings together God's great love for us with our terrible injustices and our spiritual crimes. Jesus says in so many words, in this cross, which I do for love, I provide the Father, I provide a way for my Father to be just, to correct the sins of the world that he created. And I also say in the cross that there's a pathway back to God. There's a pathway to forgiveness. There's a commitment that I will never leave you or forsake you. And even the depths of your dark heart will not keep me away from you. All this 
All that is left for you, Jesus says in so many words, all that is left for you is to receive the gift that I have given you freely. The gift of life. The gift of new life. Let's pray. Father, I want to repeat those words that the psalmist said himself when he reflected on this story. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, and say with me, and let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. God is good. God is gracious. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your grace towards us. Let us respond now, Father, with giving you our whole hearts in gratitude and praise. Amen.